<laughs> We're going to get it. All right, sweet. How you guys doing tonight? Good, good. I want to tell you tonight uh, about a guy that uh, maybe you have heard of. He's, he's like semi-famous. He's actually got an exhibit in the Smithsonian. Uh, his name is Larry Walters. Uh, maybe you've heard of him. I wouldn't be surprised if you haven't. Uh, Larry Walters was a truck driver from San Pedro, California. Uh, and uh, all Larry Walters' life, he had this dream to fly. Uh, when he was a kid, he super, super wanted to like grow up and be a pilot in the Air Force, uh, but he had bad uh, eyesight, and so that kept him from being able to join the Air Force, went into like trucking, doing that stuff, but like he never gave up on his dream. And so finally in 1982, after years of thinking through this and planning this stuff, he decided that he was going to make his dream a reality. I want to show you a picture of Larry real quick. This is Larry about to make his dreams come true. And you may be going, how is Larry going to make his dreams come true when he's sitting in a lawn chair? Well, that's because if you were to scan up, you would see that that lawn chair is attached to 43 helium-filled weather balloons <laughs> that he filled up himself and attached these things. And when I say weather balloons, these are like eight foot in diameter balloons that he attached to, this, uh, to his own lawn chair and then strapped himself into so that he could fly. Uh, these, these balloons were huge. He spent all night filling them up with helium. And just in case you thought that he was not fully thinking this through, I just want you to know he was thinking this through. This is what he packed with him. Uh, a CB radio, a uh, camera, a bucket of beef jerky, and a two liter Coke. So he's ready, right? Also a pellet gun, okay? A <laughs> pellet gun. The idea for Larry was that he was going to tie himself to these balloons. There he is kind of, you can see, he's actually already somewhat up in the air and he's tethered down to the ground and his friends are gonna cut the tether on this thing. And the idea for Larry was that he was going to gently float up to about 100 feet up in the air and then just kind of hover calmly over uh, the neighborhood and the town and then he thought with kind of the wind current he would go over the small little Mojave Desert there and, and just kind of be a peaceful little journey, snap a few pictures, all of those things. That's what he planned to do. What he actually did is uh, when they cut that uh, cord, he did not gently rise up to 100 feet. Uh, he shot up in the air like a rocket ship <laughs> to 16,000 feet. Like, to, I mean, just took off straight up in the air, 16,000 feet high, drifted seven miles over into Long Beach, okay? Not just into Long Beach, actually, drifted past that into uh, the controlled airspace for Long Beach Airport, <laughs> uh, where he was spotted by multiple uh, airline pilots flying by, which, man, I so wish I could have heard that report into the control tower. Um, that they just passed a guy in a lawn chair with, with beef jerky. Uh, and, and so his, his goal was like he's going to be floating, and then after a little while he would take his pellet gun and he would start shooting the balloons out to drift back down. Uh, he, he finds himself up in the air, 16,000 feet. He shoots a couple balloons down, uh, and then the wind kicks in and he drops his pellet gun. 
And so he just keeps going, right? Until finally, eventually, he does start coming down. And he lands over like the Long Beach area, actually lands on power line, kills the power, like uh, shuts down the power for like the city uh, because he breaks the power line as he comes down. And when he gets down, the uh, LAPD are there waiting for him, actually to, to untangle him from the power line and then to, uh, and then to arrest him and take him off to jail, actually. Uh, for, it was like one of those things, they said they asked people, like, what he's being arrested for? And they're like, we know he broke some laws, we just don't know what they are yet. So once we figure that out, we'll let you know. But he's going to jail for now. And so they took him off. Literally, his, that, that lawn chair is in the Smithsonian now, in like the like aerospace section of the Smithsonian. Uh, the only lawn chair to make it to 16,000 feet, actually. So uh, I think they asked him like why he did it. And he's like, a man can't just sit around and do nothing. Like, so that's like his, that's the explanation. Um, I love... I love that story. His, his nickname, actually, the other name he goes by is Lawn Chair Larry, all right? And I love the story about Lawn Chair Larry because you have in this one event, in this one moment, you have these two different extremes of humanity all wrapped up in one big scheme. Uh, on the one hand, what Larry pulled off was so brilliant. Like, his dream that he had uh, to, to tie up these weather balloons and get all this stuff and to strap himself in and, and like make all of that work. He has like little water jugs on there as ballasts to kind of help with like the weights and all of those things. Like that was so genius, so brilliant. And at the same time, it was so dumb, right? Like both things all tied up in this one human being in this one event, and in a lot of ways, Larry becomes this perfect picture of what Ecclesiastes is going to tell us tonight about these two things, wisdom and folly, knowledge and foolishness. He's going to talk about these two paths that people can walk down, that he's kind of explored in full, this person that we call the teacher, that's the voice uh, Koheleth in Hebrew is what it is, meaning the teacher or the preacher. And Koheleth is going to talk about wisdom and folly. And he's going to say that of these two, there is definitely a better choice for you to take. But in the grand scheme of things, both of these paths end up in a pretty similar spot. Both of these uh, paths, both of these kinds of lives don't end up all that different in a lot of ways. Uh, last week we talked about, Alec talked with you about Ecclesiastes, kind of introduced what this book is about. And, and there's this word, this key word that comes up over and over again. Uh, some, some translations say meaningless, meaningless. Some translations say uh, futility, futile, or vanity, or those kinds of things. The word is hevel in Hebrew, and it means smoke or vapor. And the idea, Alec told us, is that there are many things in life that we may try to chase. But what the writer of Ecclesiastes wants you to know before you stake your whole life on running after those things is that they're vapor. That, that they look like you can grab a hold of it and make it into what you want it to be. That you can grab life and turn it how you want it. It looks like it's right there, but as soon as you go all in on it and try to grasp it, it will slip right through your fingers. 
And over the next four weeks, we're going to get into the specific things that the teacher reminds us of, specific aspects that he goes after. Tonight, we're in chapter 1, verses 12, or yeah, starting in verse 12. And then we're going to jump into two here in just a little bit. But if you've got your Bible, you can turn there. Otherwise, we should also have the text on the screen. Here is what the teacher tells us in verse 12. I, the teacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Alec told you that this is either Solomon or someone kind of taking on like the heir of Solomon, trying to kind of walk us through what Solomon's mind would have been like. I've been the king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my mind to examine and explore through wisdom all that is done under heaven. God has given people this miserable task to keep them occupied. And I have seen all the things that are done under the sun and have found everything to be futile. That's that word, hevel, vapor, vanity, a pursuit of the wind. So we've talked about the teacher. He says, I, took, I applied my mind, he says these two words, to examine and explore through wisdom all that is done. That word examine means like to dig down deep, to dig down into the roots of something so that you are right up in the middle of it trying to get an idea. And that word explore is more like to stand back and walk all the way around it. So what the teacher wants you to know is that he left no stone unturned. He examined up close, he stepped back and walked around and examined examined slowly and carefully to make sure he knew all of those things. And and the tool, the, the microscope, if you will, that he uses to examine all of life is wisdom. I examined and explored through wisdom and through knowledge. This is a key idea for the Hebrew people in the Old Testament, that idea of wisdom being a key virtue. And he says, I used that tool to examine all of these things that are done under the sun. Now, also, one one other kind of refresher from last week Alec talked about. You'll see that phrase come up a lot, under the sun, under the sun. What that seems to be getting at is he is describing uh, life devoid of transcendence and the divine, like life cut off from God mixing himself into the picture. Like if you were to look at life without considering uh, divinity, transcendence, God reaching down, this is what life is like, is what Koheleth, what the teacher is telling us. He says it is Hevel. But before he digs into all these things, he actually, he's going to, this analogy doesn't fully make sense, but he's going to take the microscope and he's going to turn it onto itself. And he's going to examine actually wisdom itself before he even starts. What if knowledge, what if wisdom itself is the point of life? To gain more and more of it, to be able to examine life accurately and clearly. What if that's the whole point? He says, just so you know, I want to I address that from the beginning, but he'll let us know actually at the outset how this is going to go. Look at verse 15. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be be counted. This is the mystery of why life works the way that it does, the pain and the hardship, the struggle, the toil, the injustice of it all. He says, I'm just going to let you know from the beginning, it's a knot that is too big to untangle. It's it's a puzzle with pieces missing. He says, what's missing cannot even be counted. We lack too much information to even be able to do the math. He says, so just so you know where this is headed, 
It's not going to go as smoothly as you may expect. He says in verses 16 through 18, I said to myself, see, I have amassed wisdom far beyond all those who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has thoroughly grasped wisdom and knowledge. I applied my mind to know wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly. I learned that this too is a pursuit of the wind. For with much wisdom is much sorrow. And as knowledge increases, grief increases. Again, the problem he says is not that he needs more knowledge. He's plumbed the depths. I've gotten to the bottom of all of this. I've, I've looked at it from every angle. And, and there's nothing that can be fixed. There's nothing else. No one else is going to be able to come and find more things beyond those stuff. But he says all this knowledge... All of this stuff that I've gained, even that is still a chasing after the wind. You can't catch the wind. You can run all day. You'll never be able to hunt it down. In some ways, he says, actually, in some ways it can even be worse. Because with much knowledge comes much grief, he says. What he's getting at is actually sometimes the more you actually dig into something, uh, the more you begin to see how messed up it is. Uh, the more you begin to explore life, the more you can see the injustice of it all. You've ever, ever said those words, I don't want to know? Just don't tell me, like, right? Oh, this is delicious. What's in it? Wait, no, I don't even want to know. Don't even, don't even tell me how much sugar is in this because that will ruin it. There's, there's this saying, ignorance is bliss. And, and Koheleth tells us, actually, there's, there's some degree to which that is true. That the more you dig in, the more frustrated you may find yourself being. So does this mean that knowledge and wisdom are bad? That it's completely worthless? Not quite. Jump ahead with me to chapter 2. And I want to go to verse 12 there as well. Verse 12 of chapter 2. Here's what he says. Then I turned to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the king's successor be like? He will do what has already been done. And I realized that there is an advantage to wisdom over folly, like the advantage of light over darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So the teacher tells us uh, that there will be people who come after him, but, but he says, trust me. I mean, you may think you're going to find more, but I, I don't know what else you're going to see that's going to go beyond the stuff I've seen. You're going to ask all the same questions as I do. And he says, and just so you know, I will admit, there is an advantage to one way of life over the other. When compared with foolishness, wisdom is by far the better way. Life always works better when lived according to wisdom. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in the second half. This idea that actually, no, the Bible will hold up wisdom time and time again. It's something that is good and right and beautiful. He says, it, compared to walking around like a fool, compared to living in ignorance all your life, it's, it's like walking in the middle of a lit up room or walking in one that's pitch black. One is going to have you stumbling all over everything. It's going to be miserable. And so you might as well have the lights on while you're walking through life. And yet, look what he says in the very next sentence, the last half of verse 14. Yet I also knew that one fate comes to them both. So I said to myself, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been overly wise? And I said to myself that this also is futile. For just like the fool, there is no lasting remembrance of the wise. Since in the days to come, both will be forgotten. 
How is it that the wise person dies just like the fool? So he says, man, listen, I, I believe during life things will generally go better if you study wisdom, but eventually the dumbest person in the world and the smartest person in the world end up at the same point. Death. Death comes for us all eventually. Why then, he asks, why then have I spent so much time trying to learn? Why have I spent so much time gaining knowledge, working hard, studying, and learning if I'm going to end up as the same place as, as the person who didn't do those things? And Koheleth, he didn't even have to go into student debt to learn all this stuff, and he's still considered a waste of time. You people are getting hosed, okay? Like... He, he would look at you and go, oh my gosh, you guys are total, oh, this is the worst. All this, there are people who aren't going into any debt, and they're going to die too, right? So they could die for free. And you're going <laughs> to, like, but you're doing all of this study, all of these things that you have to dig into and look for why, he said, am I doing this? If in the end I end up at the same place. And then there's a second way that they're both alike. Not only will both eventually die, he says, but both will eventually be forgotten. Uh, that in the end there is no remembrance even of the wise person. Now you may be in your head right now arguing with that a little bit. Go, no, 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 actually there are some really brilliant minds through history that we still remember for their brilliance. Plato, Aristotle, Aquinas, these kinds of names that come up and, and you would be right uh, that they are remembered longer than, you know, most dumb people, I would say. But what, what actually Koheleth is doing is he's actually looking beyond and he goes, yeah, you might be brilliant, you might be remembered for another 50 years. You might be remembered for another 100 years. You might, if you are one of the very, very, very few lucky people on the earth, you may be remembered for a thousand. But there will be a day, we are told by scientists, right, when all of this will come to an end. When, when uh, again, we're talking about under the sun, so life without God in the picture, if it's true that this is all there is, then one day, like the sun is going to expand to a state that it will consume the earth. Or the earth may just move just enough out of orbit to collide with another planet if we don't do ourselves in with like nuclear weapons or those kinds of things. One day there will be no one to remember anything, including Plato, including Aristotle. So what is Plato living for is the question that he's asking over and over again. So I know what you're thinking right now. Why am I going to school then? Why am I racking up $80,000 in debt at this point? Is there any point to all of this? Is there any point to getting wisdom and to getting knowledge at all? That's what we're going to jump into in the second half of this. I want to talk about what the Bible tells us specifically, not just in Ecclesiastes, but as we walk around the rest of scriptures. How is wisdom and knowledge described? What is it good for and what is it not good for? That's what we'll talk about after the break. Take a couple minutes, stretch your legs. If you need to use the restroom, you can do that, and we'll come back. All right. Did that in under three seconds this time. So, should you drop out? Yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I am going to get so many angry emails from parents this week. I, I know it. Uh, I, uh, a few years ago, I, I was having coffee with this uh, professor from OSU. We had kind of randomly 
uh, randomly met up and there was some stuff that I was just interested in kind of learning from him about campus and life on campus and so I asked if he would mind grabbing coffee with me and so we met together and and we're just hanging out and just kind of getting to know each other a little bit and so I was asking him a lot of questions about his life and his own family and uh, he grew up over in the North Carolina area and and had uh, gotten his bachelor's and I think his master's over there and then he had moved over to OSU and had gotten his PhD uh, I think here and was actually working on another PhD currently at the time uh, as he was teaching a lot of his life had been devoted to education and I was just asking about his family and and his siblings a lot of them were the same that they had really invested deeply into education processes and then he began to tell me about his youngest sister uh, and, and as he like mentioned her, he like half started rolling his eyes. Uh, not, not, at an, not that he was annoyed at her, but frustrated with her. And, and what he told me is that she decided not to go to college after high school, that she just was kind of content with the high school degree. Uh, I think she was wanting to like be a hairdresser or something like that, was maybe doing some of those things. And you could see and you could hear in his voice just the frustration as he described this. Uh, and, and I remember this, this statement he made to me. He said, the way I see it is that life is basically a game. And if life is a game, why not give yourself every advantage to win? And that's what he considered education to be, an advantage in the game of life, that, that wisdom, that knowledge that the more he could gather to himself, the better it would help him do, the more likely he could be to, quote unquote, win the game of life. And there is some degree to which I have to say he's not wrong. I mean, you could look at Ecclesiastes and the stuff that we've read and think that it's all just a waste of time if all you read were these little sections here. But, but the Bible, what I love about the Bible is that it gives a multifaceted picture of things. And so when you read through the Bible, you'll see that, that actually the, the biblical writers, it's like if, if wisdom is this like jewel, they're willing to walk all the way around it and consider it from all sides. And, and so we learn a, a few different things about wisdom and about knowledge from the scriptures. Here's just some of those things. The first thing we learn, according to the Bible, wisdom and knowledge are good and right. The Bible lifts up the pursuit of wisdom over and over and over again. And it tells us that wisdom is a gift from God. Uh, I'm going to give you some verses. They won't be on the screen. You won't have time to turn to them, but you can write them down if you want to see them later. Proverbs 2.6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Proverbs 5.1, my son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. That is, pursue this. Open yourself to this. Make sure you get as much of this as you can. Job 28.18 says, the price of wisdom is above pearls. More valuable than jewels is wisdom. And, and, and in the scripture, there are different people that are lifted up for the wisdom that they expressed. Joseph is lifted up for his great wisdom. Solomon, Daniel, Jesus himself is talked about for the great wisdom that he possessed, and that is seen as a good thing. The Apostle Paul, when he writes in the New Testament all these letters to his churches of his, he often includes, at the beginning of the letter usually, a prayer that he is praying for them. 
I love these little prayers just to get a, 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 a kind of a sneak peek into Paul's mind and into the kinds of things that I should probably be praying about. And one of the things he almost always prays for his churches is that they would be filled with wisdom and knowledge. That God would give them his wisdom. That God would give them his knowledge. Listen, to know what is true and right and to know how to live that out, that's beautiful. And that is something that is severely lacking in our world today. There is a lack of wisdom amongst people, and it is a beautiful thing when you get to see that at work in somebody's life. Even, even like in non-spiritual things. I'm not just talking about moral and spiritual things, although those are good, but even, even just kind of what we may call like ordinary things in life to have that kind of knowledge. I'm grateful for the wisdom and knowledge that gave us antibiotics. I'm grateful for the wisdom and knowledge that gives us phones that allow us to communicate with loved ones across great distances and those kinds of things. I'm grateful for the wisdom and knowledge that gave us hygiene um, and not just like deodorant, but like washing hands and those kinds of things that keep us healthy and that keep us safe. Theologians have a term for things like this. The, the term is called common grace. That is the gifts that God gives to all of humanity. And often he gives these gifts through humanity that he gives minds to great thinkers so that they can come up with these things. And God is giving us medicine, and God is giving us hygiene, and God is giving us technology, those kinds of things. And so I, I will tell you tonight, pursue knowledge. Run after wisdom. They are good gifts from God. You don't have to drop your classes. You can keep going. They are good and right gifts. But there is a second thing that the Bible tells us that you should know, that knowledge is good and right, Wisdom is good and right, but also wisdom and knowledge are dangerous. There's this professor at the college that I went to, uh, Ozark Christian College. His name was Mark Scott. And Mark Scott used to say this a lot. Get all the knowledge that you can keep sanctified. Sanctified, that is like that you can keep holy and pure. Get all the knowledge that you can keep good and right and pure. And the reason he says it like that is because he wants you to gain a lot of knowledge, but he also knows that that's not always easy to keep knowledge sanctified, to keep it holy and pure. Knowledge has a tendency to be paired along with pride, that those two things run hand in hand. We see this in 1 Corinthians 8.1 where Paul says that uh, love builds up, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge makes us feel really good about ourselves. That feeling of superiority, it just comes so naturally when I know more than you do. So it's always a sign that I might be probably better than you are. At least it feels like that. And, and it does seem to be true. There is a stereotype and even a trend, I think, that many in academics, that many people who are very learned often um, are less likely to believe in God. And some people think it's because, well, you know, the smarter you get, the more you realize that things like re religion and all of that is just kind of like child's play. That's like stuff that we used to believe before we figured things out. I don't think that that's the case. Uh, there are far too many brilliant Christian minds throughout history and even today, uh, like earth-shattering, history-shaping names like Galileo, uh, like Isaac Newton, uh, like even today, Francis Collins, director of the Genome Project and the, health, the National Health Institute, who are Christian, and they would vouch for the fact that it is their Christian faith that enables them to be able to explore God's world in the form and fashion that it is. 
So there are too many minds like that to make me believe that the smarter you get, the more you get too smart for religion. That's not what's happening. What I think actually happens, though, is this truth, that there are few things that can, that can keep us from seeing and knowing God like pride. And there are few things that can bring pride faster than knowledge. And that's not just true of like science or those kinds of things. I witnessed it at the, at the college that I went to where people came to train themselves for vocational ministry, to serve the church, to be missionaries. And I watched how some people, if they did not have a maturity or a humility in them, the more and more knowledge they got, the further and further it pushed them away from Jesus. At a Christian college. It happens. There's, there's something to that. And so we see in Scripture that God, even though he says that we ought to seek wisdom, there are times when God actually attacks those who are considered wise. Like in Job 5.13 says this, that he, God, catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. Or in the prophets, over and over again, they will rail against those, those wise men in their country who are considered to have special insight into the ways of the world and even how God works. And the prophets will lambast them over and over for those kinds of things. Isaiah 29, 14 talks about God doing some unexpected things that no one could have seen coming. And he says this, uh, he says, And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. It will, it will be wasted. I will capture that stuff away. Anytime you've got it all figured out, that's a dangerous place to be. Anytime you don't have any more to learn about something, or at least you think you don't, that's always a dangerous place to be. Wisdom and knowledge are good and right and beautiful. Wisdom and knowledge can also be dangerous. There's this third thing, and this is what we've already heard, that wisdom and knowledge are futile, that they're vapor, that they're smoke. Now, I know that sounds like I'm contradicting the first point that we just made, that it's good and right and beautiful. No, 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 wisdom and knowledge are good. They really do make life easier. It makes relationships better. It makes things work a lot easier in a lot of ways, but many look to wisdom to do more than that. They, they want wisdom to give them things that it can never give them. And this is where wisdom and knowledge become vapor. When you start to treat them as something that lets me grab a hold of life and twist it into what I want it to be, that's when you're going to find it slipping through your fingers. One of the things that it cannot do, that many people want it to do, it cannot give you a lasting identity. There are a lot of people who that is what wisdom and knowledge are for them. It is a, it's a merit badge. It's, it's the thing that makes them who they are, the smartest guy in the room, the smartest girl in the room. And so many people will study and work hard because, because it's not just that they're wanting to do well, it's not just that they're wanting to accomplish things, but they have wrapped up their own identity, who, they very, uh, who their very being is. They've wrapped that up in their ability to be smart and to be ahead of the curve and all of those things. But you should know that an identity, an identity built upon knowing a lot, is not a very stable identity. Actually, some of you former valedictorians know that. Uh, some of you, actually, I should say some of us, okay, just so you know. 
<laughs> Some of us, former valedictorians, uh, graduated top of my class, class of three, okay? But I was way smarter than those other two people, so just so you know. Um, some of you know this, okay? That actually, like, you remember what it was like to be like the smartest person at your school, to, to graduate the top of your class and to feel really incredible about yourself and to kind of have some bit of identity wrapped up. And then you go off to like college and you start meeting a lot of people who are a lot smarter than you. And there's part of you that goes, ah, I'm not exactly sure where I fit now. Not exactly sure what I do now. Maybe that's not you yet. Maybe you're still the smartest person in the room. Trust me, you keep going. You'll find a spot where you're not. There will one day be a, part, uh, a place that you land on where you are not the most important and the most smart person in the room, the wisest person. And, and if you try to build an identity around this, you will always be scrambling to keep that identity intact. You will always have to be struggling and working to stay ahead so this can be who you are, but one day you won't be able to anymore because one day, like almost all of us, your mind will begin to fade. One day the things that you had about you, the things you remember will begin to slip and then eventually your body too will go and eventually even every remembrance of you will go. There will be no identity because no one will even remember you or what you've accomplished. Wisdom cannot give you a lasting identity. Here's another thing it cannot, do, it cannot do. It cannot guarantee your security. There are a lot of people who that's what knowledge is for them. Maybe this is you. Maybe there are a few things that make you feel more vulnerable and more anxious in this life than not knowing. To not know things that are going to come, to not know what you're supposed to do, to not know how to accomplish a given task. And so knowledge for you has become your form of protection. It has become your armor to always know more things, to have risk assessment down, to be prepared for things, to be ready and studied up. And there are a lot of people who operate in this way. And, and listen, it will help. Like I said, it, it will help you in your life, but what wisdom and knowledge cannot do is guarantee your security. It cannot be trusted to fully do that all your life. History is full of brilliant women and men who died penniless. There are a lot of Ukrainian PhDs right now who spent their life developing wisdom and knowledge far beyond a lot of other people on this planet. And those really brilliant PhDs are living as homeless refugees in Poland right now. Not because there's anything wrong with the knowledge they sought. It's just that that knowledge cannot control all events in history. It can't control whether a Russian missile hits your apartment building that you've been living in for the last 10 years. It can't, it can't steer all of life and all of history in the direction that you want it to be. Every day, very wise, very smart people die of cancer and of tragic accidents, which leads us to this last thing that wisdom and knowledge cannot do. It cannot save you. And this is one of the biggest messages from Ecclesiastes, that both the fool and the wise person eventually come to the same end. Both will die. That professor that I sat down and talked with, he was right. That if life is a game and wisdom and education is something that you can get to give you an advantage, you should do it. It can, it can help you out in those things. You will probably, if you get a college education, and if you go further than that, you will probably be able to um, make your way further around the game board than most other people in life. 
But sooner or later, all the pieces get cleared off. And they all go back to the same place. As we said last semester, it all goes back in the box. And then what? And then what have you given yourself for? At least the kind of wisdom that Ecclesiastes describes, that kind of wisdom that is under the sun, that kind of wisdom has no ability to save you, the kind of wisdom that comes only from this world, that cuts itself off from the divine. But there is another kind of wisdom, the most beautiful and difficult to see. In fact, it is a wisdom that will often look like foolishness to the people around us to the rest of the world. I mentioned earlier Isaiah 29, which talks about God catching people's wisdom where they are and and capturing them in that, destroying that wisdom. Actually, that very verse that I just read to you, the Apostle Paul quotes that verse in 1 Corinthians 1. And he talks about this idea of wisdom in it. He says this in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 19 says, for it is written, this is, this, this is the verse from Isaiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. So what he says is he says he takes the the wisdom of the world and he makes it foolish. What he's saying is he basically takes all of man's wisdom and he turns it on its head. That, That God was doing something really unique in the first century that no one saw coming. God chose to make it where the one kind of wisdom that could save you is the one kind of wisdom that you could not figure out on your own. That the one kind of wisdom that could save you and make things right would be a kind that you would have to reach out to him for, that you would have to ask him for. And what is that wisdom that saves you? Read on in verses 22 through 24. For the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks, they seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The Greeks were known, and you know this, for their great love of learning and philosophy. That's where those names like like Plato and Aristotle come from. They were known for those things. And Paul says they're all about trying to wrestle the world down, wrestle life down through wisdom. But he says there's this kind of wisdom that they cannot wrestle down to the ground themselves. It's something that they're going to have to seek, not here below the sun, but up above. And it's this, this thing that no one could have seen coming, this stumbling block, this scandal. And that is that God came to save the world through a crucified peasant. That would be to them scandalous and foolish. If you are looking for a Messiah, if you are looking for someone to save you, if you are looking for someone to make all things right, no one would ever look to a crucified man to be that Messiah or that Savior. Man could never come up with an idea like this, that the ruler of the universe came and got himself pummeled to death by his enemies. But what Paul says, the secret wisdom is, is that when Jesus was up on that cross dying, looking defeated, he wasn't losing. He was actually 
in that moment winning the greatest victory this world has ever seen. He was actually winning that because he was not going to stay dead. And the one thing that we could never overcome through our wisdom, what Ecclesiastes tells us over and over again, wisdom can't save you from death. Your wisdom can't save you from death. Your knowledge can't help you overcome death. The one thing our wisdom could never accomplish for us, God's wisdom did. Conquered all of death. He says this in verses 30 through 31. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus who became wisdom from God for us. Our righteousness, our sanctification and redemption in order that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Wisdom and knowledge are really good things. They're good things. I hope that you will follow the Bible's advice and that you will pursue those things, that you will seek after them. But I also hope this, that you will not try to expect from them something they can never give you. Because there is only one wisdom that can transform your identity. There is only one true wisdom in all the world that can redeem all of your worst failures and make them new again. There is only one wisdom that has the ability to undo the power of death in your life. And that wisdom is Jesus Christ given to us as our wisdom, as our righteousness, as our sacrifice. You don't wrestle that down for yourself. You don't grab a hold of it and get smart enough to get yourself saved. The only thing that can do that is God saving you through Jesus Christ. And Paul says that is a wisdom worth having. It will seem to some like foolishness, but that kind of wisdom is the very power of God. Get yourself as much of that as you can. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for the gift of wisdom. I thank you that you give that to us through your word. I thank you that you give that to us in creation and give us minds to study things. I thank you most of all, though, that the most brilliant thing that ever happened looked dumb to everybody else. That it was something that smart people could never figure out. Um, and that is you saving the world through a crucified man and Lord, I pray this for my friends in this room, uh, that you would give them that wisdom, that you would open their eyes tonight to see the truth of Jesus who saves us from what our smarts and our brains and our cleverness could never save us from. I pray that for them tonight, and I ask that your Holy Spirit would move in us to do that. In the name of Jesus, amen. Do you guys want to see?